Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, everyone. My guest today is broadcast journalist and talk show host Tamron Hall. Tamron and I talk about embracing age, different styles of parenting, Tamron's family history, realizing childhood dreams, love, heartbreak, and a lot more. Today's first caller is Brooke, whose long-distance relationship is finally coming to an end because she and her boyfriend are moving in together. Brooke works remotely and has agreed to move closer to her boyfriend's job, but is nervous about uprooting her life. Next to call in is Alexa, who initially wrote to us when her boyfriend unexpectedly ended their relationship. Now they're back together and Alexa wonders if she can trust him or if history will repeat itself. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast. If you have a question and would like to talk with us, you can find the link in our show notes or at unqualified.com. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. I can't believe you're doing this in the middle of a move. Please. It's all good. Listen, I'm 52. I've moved a lot. I love it that you just said your age, like loud and proud. The hang up on the age. Yeah. You know what is crazy? Because I remember when I think I was 37. And so when I turned 40, I remember someone in our world of TV entertainment or news entertainment. Oh, you know, you can't tell people your age. And I'm like, have you met Wikipedia? First of all, it's not 1950. You can't hide it. And everybody now who went to school with you, they have Twitter accounts and everything else. Totally. And it feels fruitless. Yeah, it's fruitless. And funny enough, I appreciate time more. Being a mom who had a kid at 48, you know, you're just like, oh boy, I'm probably never going to meet my grandchildren. I'm aware of time in a different way, but not in a frightening way. But yeah, 52. And I don't feel it. It's crazy. I was thinking about how a male celebrity would react. And I don't like to necessarily gender. I understand. I understand. But some things do. Like how they would react if a journalist asked them, so how do you manage it all? How do you chuckle it? Your child, your career. I feel like the expression would be like, what? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Because the truth is, is that it is hard. And it does, I think, land a little harder on our shoulders. You know, we're thinking about school lunches. You know, I sometimes look over at my husband, who's a wonderful guy. He's my best friend. And he's sound asleep. And I'm Googling speech therapy, when to know if your child needs it, you know, and how to get a picky eater and best ways to avoid spanking your kid. Totally. And he's like sound asleep. And I have had more sleepless nights in the three years of loving this creature. Sleepless nights from 
wanting everything to not be perfect, but making the best decisions that I'm armed to make, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so there I am up at night looking for information to help arm me to make the best decisions. And my husband's in la-la land, or he'll wake up some days. And again, I'm with you. I'm not big on gender stereotypes because he's a great partner and he's a great guy. But he'll wake up and say, so where should we have dinner tonight? And I'm like, dude, is that the most pressing thing on your mind? And I'm sitting here thinking, all of a sudden, my kid's a picky eater and won't eat anything. And now I'm the chicken nuggets, french fry family. Totally. How did this happen? And all he's like, hey, what are we going to eat dinner tonight? You're not alone. I don't know if you feel guilty about the food shit. Oh, I do. I do. It's tearing me up. Here's why. I feel hypocritical. I feel hypocritical, Anna, because before having my kid, I was like, Yo, just make that child eat. And you know what? You're going to eat what you get. And that's uh -huh. it. And da, 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 da. I'm all the big talker. So I feel like a hypocrite. So in the first year, my kid was eating like pureed zucchini and I'm making like salmon balls and he's eating it at 12 months old. And then all of a sudden lights out, he was in control. So I went from being praised by some of my mom friends saying, oh my God, how did you do it? And also on my high horse as the one single woman or non-mom who said, oh great, I got this, to my kids now eating. And I'm hiding totally. the fact from my friends yes. that my kid is oh eating because I'm a hypocrite. My child is 10 now. And I had the other day a parent at his school ask me like, what do you play with them? What do you do to keep them occupied? And I'm just like, iPad. <laughs> Okay, I've never told anyone this. Okay, but we're fast friends, I can tell. I'll tell you this story. And it is a source of great guilt for me. And I haven't told my friends this. So when we all shut down, right, I started doing the show from home and Coco Melon was big. Everybody's talking about Coco Melon at the time. And my son, he was like nine or 10 months. And I was taping the show, multiple shows from home. As I've talked about openly, our nanny lives with us because my nearest relative is over 2,000 miles away. What a gift you'll be able to give your child. It is. And yourself. That is it awesome. Is. I applaud it. that. And I appreciate you talking about it. Well, I was torn about it, to be honest with you, because I didn't want people to say, oh, well, listen, she's waited that long to have the kid and she can't even raise her kid. But the reality is my mom was a 19-year-old single mother without my aunts, without cousins, without relatives in Texas. Her village, you know, helped her continue to work, get her education and pull herself up so that she could be the mom she dreamt of being. So in this case, I don't have relatives around me, but I have this amazing woman who is helping me in my home. So to act like I was doing it myself was, again, dishonest. And it was also not acknowledging, just like we had the big conversation because Rebel Wilson reveals she has a surrogate. She used a surrogate to become a mom. And there were some people with opinions like, wait a minute, to deny that these are tracks in our lives or to deny other great women who help us become the people that we want to be the mom. So I was not going to ignore the fact that this amazing woman was living with me. But going back to this, so I said, okay, let me balance this. She was on, if you will, when I was taping. So my son was waking up, like most kids, middle of the night, and I would sneak him in the bed and prop him between two pillows while I got a few extra yeah. winks and turned on Coco Melon. Yeah. And when I tell you, I've never told anybody this, and I still to this day, when I think about it, and I feel so guilty, but I needed that extra sleep. Listen, you'll get numb to this guilt. <laughs> when he's six and seven, he's going to be like, mommy, 
I want this. I want it now. You know what I mean? Then you're going to be like, okay, you can watch it for half an hour or an hour. (laughs) Well, my husband is like, well, we all grew up watching TV. We're fine. I said, here's the difference, though, Stephen. They didn't have 500 channels plus iPads plus, you know, it was a big deal. when I got Atari at 12 years old, whatever. Exactly. So I try to limit it. I do reconcile with there are a lot of little learning games. Uh-huh. Allegedly, they're learning. Right. So I use those. But we flew this summer to Italy. It's a nine-hour flight. And so I told Stephen, I said, we all listen to music at dinner. We watch TV. You know, they need that too, don't they? Yes, they do. For a flight, for a hard trip, for after school, for before dinner, uh, for yeah. after dinner, for before school. <laughs> but when <laughs> mama needs a nap a second. <laughs> oh, yeah. Plug them in. Oh, my God. Tamron, you've been so accomplished for a long time. Will you tell us about your career journey and what advice, what you've learned along the way, what struggles you've had? So, For me, it's really interesting. As I shared with you, my mother was a single mom. My grandfather actually was born in 1901 in rural Texas. He could not read, but I make my living with my words, right? So that's that's a head trip in itself, that how I find my love through my work and how I find my voice in a way he had no ability to communicate, which is through reading. Was he open about that? Yeah. You know what? I never discussed it with him. So again, he was born in 1901. We're from a farming community. My grandfather was a sharecropper. So I believe that, you know, for someone of his generation and especially a black man born in a rural place, his source of pride was that he was a dignified man and he raised his children. You know, people always called him Mr. Mitchell. So that part of his journey was never really prominent or highlighted. Mm-hmm. You know, time and perspective matters. 1901. My grandfather, his father passed away. So in second grade, he had to take on the role of the man of the house in second grade. So therefore, he had to leave school uh. and he had to work in the fields and the farm. And while horrifying in the lens of our 2022 lives, What we know is many places around the world, that was the choice, right? Yeah. Because women were not allowed in the workforce. My great-grandmother, as strong as she was, was never going to be able to take care of her family. So like we see around the world, that responsibility, if the father is not there for whatever reason, in his case, his father died, falls onto the son. This is a different time we're talking totally, about, yeah. 1901. So for him, I don't believe the issue of reading was one of shame at all because he was able to take care of his mother and his sister, who was born with a disability at the time that was not understood. But my grandfather, he was able to raise with his wife, ultimately, seven children, one of them being my mother. So these sources of great pride and how pride was measured back then, which it is to this day as well. I mean, we know that a great source of pride is how we raise our children, right? And so he had that and lived a wonderful life. And going back to the question that you asked me, got an opportunity on his journey to meet this little kid, his granddaughter. And in me, tell me I can do anything. So that's why I also know that that wasn't a source of insecurity because he was the person, right? My mother and my grandfather brought me home from the hospital. And it's through the lens of this man, I was able to believe that I could do anything. So here I am, this talkity-talkity kid, as if you can't tell. that. I, and my nickname was not necessarily. So I was like the little <laughs> lawyer on the block and I was the contrarian. I love it. You were challenging everything already. 
I was challenging the establishment. And so I think I was born, obviously, to do this in some weird way. But I thought I'd be Johnny Carson because that's what was on TV. I wanted to be Johnny Carson or Carol Burnett. That was it. But, you know, there were no black women who were news anchors at that time. There were very few women, for that matter. And the prominence of being a news anchor or reporter, the most I saw was maybe a war correspondent or something, you know, on the news, but nothing that looked like you or me, for that matter, to aspire to be. So Carol Burnett was my dream. Johnny Carson, I figured I could do that. And then as I got a little bit older, Wheezy Jefferson, because she was the richest black woman on TV before Oprah. So there I have this trifecta of entertainment that was really sparking an interest. Were you interested in acting like? No, not at all, because I actually didn't see them as actors, which is so strange. They were communicators, right? Carol Burnett, and it's so funny after I got a chance to meet her some years ago and tell her what an impact she had on me. I didn't see this as acting. These were people who were communicating, if that makes sense at all. And they were characters. Mm -hmm. So I went on. I wrote a lot. I journaled a lot as a kid. I loved reading and any kind of book that people would put in front of me. And at some point, I would say probably middle school, I knew I was going to be a journalist. I didn't know what type of journalist. I didn't know if it would be in print. I didn't know if it was going to be on TV. But I knew I was very curious and interested in people. And I loved sitting with people and learning where they were from or even like, oh, your mom cooked that? That's from where? Oh, your mom's Polish? Oh, that's, yeah. I was just always very curious about people. And that started my journey. Was it easy for you to be popular through inquisitiveness? I was the queen of nerddom. I was the queen of underdogs. Like anybody that had, you know, a divorced parent, you know, didn't look like they were supposed to fit in. I ended up attracting in middle school and high school just this wide range of very eccentric characters around me who we were truly not quite Lord of the Flies. I don't know what we were lording over, but we were definitely the underdog crew you didn't want to mess with. Were you angry? Did you have like that teenage sort of resentment? I think I was very rebellious from birth. So I never fostered anger. I was pretty much the one that was going to make it happen. I'm still to this day, you know, when my girlfriends go through things, I'm the call. I'm the break the glass, come and get me. I'm going to come and get you. We're going to circle his house and see whose car that is. I was that woman early in life. <laughs> You're investigative. I'm your ride or die. <laughs> I'm going to figure this out. So even in my early years, I found, you know, there was a moment when there was a bully. I'll never forget. There was this kid. He was a really tough kid and he was bullying everybody in our neighborhood. I was about 12 or 11 years old. Was his name Brad? <laughs> His name was, because we're from Texas, his name was Booker T. No. Like a character. Booker. Yeah. His Booker. Shit, Booker's coming. Booker T. Booker's coming. He's going to beat everybody up on the street. But I had a fearlessness that for whatever reason, the kids in the neighborhood, it, it, this is really like some kind of Spielberg film, like the Stand By Me kids running. Yeah. So the kids all come and get me. And they're like, Booker T is picking on everybody. And I'm like, oh, not gosh, necessarily, yeah. <laughs> not necessarily. So there I am. I marched. And it's like a scene from a freaking movie. I'm marching with the kids and we're going to finally take it to him. And we did. And we ganged up on him. And I don't know. I don't advocate violence, but we beat him up. And my dad said, you've got to stop, you know. And I said, dad, he's picking on us and this is not right. So I guess it's my first advocacy, you know. My dad said, that's not how to handle things, though. And I said, but dad, he said, you can speak up for people, but you don't have to do it in this way. 
So I guess, again, hitting that journalism, how do I speak up for people, but don't do it in that way? Every fight doesn't have to be resolved this way. Meanwhile, though, they're like carrying me through the streets like Rocky. That must have felt amazing. (laughs) Well, at the expense of such a villain, it's good. Booker T set himself up for that. But my dad gave me this big old thing about, you know, sticking up for people and how do you stick up for people? And again, these are touch points in my life. And I say my dad, so let me go back real quick. My mother ended up marrying my stepfather, but he's the father that I was meant to have. He was in the army for 30 years, solid, wonderful, amazing man, 25 years older than my mom, but showed great love. And I never knew there was a division between dad, stepdad. He's my dad. Anyway, I started to journal and started to write and people noticed that I was, according to my teachers, a good writer, but terrible in math. And I started to be shepherded into programs, junior league, junior achievement, all these things that people who invested time and mentored in kids and help you flourish. And my parents kept me in activities. I ran track, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I started out though, went to college, Temple University in Philadelphia. And I started my on-air career really there on a little local PBS station. I was doing reports on people losing their social security. There was an area that I lived in that was going under regentrification into all of these People who'd been living there for such a long time were being moved out of the neighborhood and where would they go? And I was one of the kids moving in because my university had brought up all the property. And so the families who had been there for years, generations, could no longer live there. And so I started to do a story on it. I was like 18. And that was like my first report. That's incredible. Isn't that crazy? You were proactive, though, from jump, essentially. I think I was wired that way through how I was raised. You know, I was always very fearless. The not necessarily, I think, was natural to me. But my family nurtured in me this kind of stick up for yourself and stick up for other people. But how do you do it? What's the right way to do it? And then that dovetailed into this career where... I started reporting in Dallas, Fort Worth, and then I ended up in Chicago for 10 years. And then I got a call to join the Today Show on MSNBC and became the first Black woman to co-host the show in 62 years. And I started to just really embrace the power and not in a negative way, not in a head trip ego way, but the power to impact the conversation, the power to make someone's day or break someone's day. And that became how I defined journalism. And that's kind of how it went from there. But going back to the core of what you do with this great conversation, you know, how you do that or how you find your voice. Oh, my goodness. You and I both could give a list of everything we did in life and let another kid follow and it would turn out different. But the one thing I hope that we have and I know we do in common is at some point you learn who you are and you become a rooted tree in that. That doesn't mean your branches don't spawn and grow other things and you learn, but the root of who you are becomes such a foundation that it helps guide you morally. It helps guide you in professional relationships and personal relationships and ultimately to the careers that we have and the friendships that we have. And they go hand in hand. I don't think you can be a good friend and bad at work. I think they go hand in hand because how you treat people is how you treat people professionally and personally. Yes, I just love this. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Tamron, will you tell us now about two heartbreaks in your life? Maybe one romantic, one career. Yeah, yeah. Well, one early on, I thought I would be a track star. I ran track my entire life. I thought I was destined to be in the Olympics. Wow. And that is like work ethic. And so while in the back of my mind, I was writing in this journalism thing, I was always very good. Honestly, I was very good at that. Can I ask you something? Because I've never been good at athletics. Yeah. What do you think about when you're running? It's winning. It's winning. It's not giving up the toughness. I started running track at age four. So I was in the Junior Olympics, all of these things. And then I think that you said something so tremendous. It's the work ethic, right? That's the difference maker in all of our lives. At some point, my work ethic in track teetered off without me realizing it, right? I was no longer as interested as I thought I was, right? Because I thought this was my destiny, but I wasn't putting in the work like I did at age 17, at age by 18. I thought I was going to go to the Olympics, but in reflection, I wasn't putting in the work to do that. My interest had started to disperse. Was it devastating? It was. When you realize you're not working as hard as you think you are, and that's why it's not happening. And that's the first heartbreak, to realize that you don't really love something as much as you thought you did. And that's a heartbreak because that's a mourning. Because early on, I had been so defined by Tamron Hall. She runs so fast. And I realized I didn't love it as much. But then you have to go, what do I love? So I think that's the first realization of, so I have the book, it's called The Path of Light. And I got it when I was like 20. And it talks about the universe will conspire to give you things you really want. But how many times have you thought you wanted something? So that brings me to my next heartbreak. I was in love with this guy. And that's how I cut my hair. He loved Anita Baker more than he loved me. And I cut my hair to look like Anita Baker. How old are you at this point? I'm like 19. Yeah, that's right when it's raw. Yeah, it's raw. And I remember even seeing him for the first time on campus. And I liked some guys or whatever, but this guy was just different. And I don't know what it was about him, but he was just different. And I remember he had a girlfriend when I met him, actually. And I met him my freshman year in college, but she didn't return the second semester And somehow we started bonding, if you will, and things took off from there. But in one of our breaks from one another, for whatever reason, he started seeing someone else. And I ended up at a party and I saw him with this person and it was devastating. And my friends were all there and we're trying to figure out, like, can he see us? And we're just, oh, God. And it was just crazy emotions. And then I was so devastated. The next day I missed all of my finals. I had like three finals the next day. Oh, that doesn't sound like you. It was not. And I remember going to one of my professors and I said, love sucks. And I told the truth that I had overslept. I'd been crying all night after seeing my boyfriend. So I missed my exam and she let me take the exam again. 
So that was my first love heartbreak that I'd ever experienced. Do you reflect on that and think that it was at that time in your life more about the betrayal as opposed to kind of knowing the person and what they're giving to you in your own life? I think it was the betrayal. I think it was the embarrassment, right? Your friends are there. 100%. And it's also crummy to learn your feelings don't match up with someone else's, right? By the way, we still talk and he's going to be mortified that I'm telling this story. We're friends. That is so beautiful. Well, years later, years later. It speaks to your character, though. Thank you. But I was also 19. So I don't know, maybe if I was 40, I might not be talking to him anymore. But I was 19 and it was young love. You know, every movie that we've been trained to watch about love, this wasn't supposed to end this way. He was supposed to be my college sweetheart. We were going to get married probably or whatever, or we'd be there for each other as he went on to do what he was going to do. Marriage was never front of mind for me in that sense, but definitely having somebody in my life forever was always a part of it. So that was the first love heartbreak of like a major level. And I think probably losing my spot on the Today Show because that was a dream job for me. And I thought, you know, probably high school, college, watching the Today Show and never imagining that I'd be able to be part of it and then becoming part of history there. And I was 48, right? I'd never lost a job in my life. My hardest job ever was waitressing. And I quit that at 11 days, which is why I tip good because it's a hard ass job. It's a hard ass job. Yes. I don't get around about that. But I always thought, keep your head down, work hard. It pays off work ethic. So unlike with the track situation where I could look back in reflection and realize I wasn't putting in the work. In this case, I knew I was putting in the work. And now I'm 48 years old, right? I'm a 48-year-old woman in an industry that we talked about earlier, how men are given the uh, license to age and women are not. And so now I'm single, unemployed. And my mother says to me, you know, you can come back home and sleep in your room. And I'm thinking... Is this an Alfred Hitchcock nightmare? <laughs> My mom has said this to me so many times. We'll make pies, is what she says. Right, I'm like... <laughs> My mom's like, you can come back. You always have a room here. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, mom, I'm 48. The movie can't end like this. It's incredibly hard to talk about that kind of heartbreak. I really admire this about you, that you talk about the career ideas. And I think that what's tricky about our career and probably most careers, if I really wanted to examine it, is the idea that it can't not be perceived as personal, mm -hmm. at least for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of course, it feels personal within this massive corporate structure. Yeah. yeah. How did they tell you? I don't mind talking about it because it led me to where I am now, which is my own talk show in its fourth season. Two Emmy wins later that I'm so proud of. And more important, my own show where, like you, I get to curate the conversation. Yes. And I get to talk about things that I didn't have a choice in in the matter and executive produce the show. Funny enough but not funny enough, there had been rumblings that there would be a change. And we'd gone in and presented the ratings, which were fantastic. And I'd gone in and presented my cases to, wait a minute, are you sure? You must be talking about somebody else because here's my work ethic and here's how I'm performing and here's da-da-da. So every day I would do the Today Show. Then I had 45 minutes to go over to MSNBC to host an hour there. And then that week I was filling in for Lester Holt on Nightly News because he was on assignment. 
So I left the Today Show. And by the way, I'm still great friends with almost everybody. Savannah Guthrie and I go to the same church around the corner from my home. Al Roker is still like my goddad. So I'm very, very close to uh, several people there. So I'm walking from the studio on one side to MSNBC studio, and I see three decision makers leaving a decision maker's office. And the universe said, it's going down. And I said, oh my God, I see it happen. Whoa, it's like a movie. And then I had to be on air and I started the show live and my then agent texted me while live because he was in LA and I don't think he realized the time change, whatever. He wrote me and said, they've decided to make a change and they've made you this offer. And I'm trembling inside. I felt nauseous. And you're still on air. I don't even remember who I was interviewed. Poor person. I'm so sorry to that person. But I don't remember a single thing about the show. I just remember trembling and looking down and like looking up and trying to read the camera. And then I looked at the words and I knew it was an offer that was meant for me to refuse. And to your point about not taking it personally, at that point, it went from heartbreak to not taking it personal in an instant. Oh, amazing. And I think, though, the age has brought me there. That's right. And perspective, right? I lost my sister. I'm an advocate for survivors of domestic violence. I had taken on that role in my life and speaking about my sister and the loss of my sister. I had lost my father by then, the greatest man that I knew outside of my grandfather. So instantly, life like slapped perspective into me, right? It's like, wait a minute, hold up. And I got off air, went home. Dolly Parton, I asked her once, what do you do before a show? She said, pee and pray. I went home, I prayed, and I did not ask for that job. I asked God, the universe, for guidance. And it truly, Anna, in this way, and this is not about religion, it's not about faith, it's about finding your calm, right? Whatever that is. I actually practice transcendental meditation. So it's finding your calm. And somehow I was able to find my calm. And in that calm, found my way forward. I found my way not to be angry. I mean, there were more people angry for me than I was angry. Oh, isn't that the best? It's the best. When other people shoulder the burden of your own anger. Yeah. I am so sorry about my bird tweeting. And she's saying hi. Hi. Hi, babe. (laughs) Jojo. So I think that was a lesson, too, because in heartbreak, in sadness, if you allow it to consume you, you can't get out of it. And maybe if this had happened to me at 28 or 38, I wouldn't have been that prepared. But at 48, I'd lived enough where I've learned, going back to advice you give, truly anger and resentment weigh your wings down and you can't fly. And so for whatever reason, I was in a position at that point not to allow anger or resentment to weigh me down. And that's maybe not taking it personally. And it was personal, but I didn't take it personally. I love the idea of talking about the value of age. Yeah. There are wonderful things about age that involve peace to a degree, less torment. Yeah, Yeah. and I think you do it a different way. You know, one of my favorite songs is Bonnie Raitt's Scared to Run Out of Time. It's a beautiful song. And, you know, she talks about watching her families getting old and watching their bodies change. And then she talks about, you know, her sister and the desire to have a child and you're scared to run out of time. And I'm not afraid to run out of time. I'm afraid of not having learned from the time I've spent in work and in life. And so I make sure that I mentor, I make sure that I'm part of important conversations like this because the best of who I am is when I'm around good company and the best of what I can bring is when I learn from my own life. 
And so that's why aging, I don't think about it that way. Of course, I use eye cream. I use red eye yeah, cream. You look incredible. I want to look good. I want to feel good. And I try to do that. But it's having honest and frank conversations about age and what that means and what you gain from age. And you gain a lot, I feel, when you can open yourself to it. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're here with Tamron, who is magnificent. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Brooke, thank you so much for your letter. Will you tell us what's going on? Yeah. So I have been dating my current boyfriend for about a year and a half. We've been doing long distance. He lives about an hour away in my hometown. And it's kind of more in the country I live in, a bigger city. And we're kind of at the point now where we want to move in together. And we're kind of figuring out the right location for that. And he doesn't really want to move here. I don't really want to move back to my hometown. So we've kind of agreed on a place that is closer to where he works. By the way, he works like two and a half hours from where I live and like an hour and a half from where he currently lives. So we're looking to move to a city which is closer to where he works. I'm remote, so I can kind of go anywhere. Okay, good. Yeah. So I don't think it's really fair for me to be like, you have to move where I live because I don't know, that's just not really fair to him. But anyways, the city that we're looking at moving to is not like either one of our first choices, but I think it's going to be something that's temporary for us until we like save money to buy a house in that place that we are really excited about. So I guess what I would like advice on is kind of like, I'm closing out a chapter. I'm going to be leaving my friends. I'm going to be leaving the city that I really like. He's leaving his friends. We're going somewhere where neither one of us know anyone. So I kind of just wanted advice on like how to close out a chapter without fear and move forward, make new friends, etc. Who initiates the discussion, I guess, about moving in together? I think it's been him, but I'm also totally on board with it. Like I do want us to live together. We talk about being together long-term and he's someone that I really, truly love and see a life with. It's just a lot of compromise, I guess, for both of us at this point. At the end of your letter, you write, 
I'm not too keen on small town living, so we're trying to decide what to do, or maybe we're just too different. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's true. We are very different, but I feel like this is kind of going to be a compromise, whereas the place that we're moving is not completely what he wants. It's not completely what I want. There's a little bit of both for us there. I don't think that we're like too different to make things work. I think I meant that like we're too different to agree on a place for now. So my husband is probably 5'5". He's a Jewish guy from the Bronx. So we could not be more opposite. But let me tell you, I love that you're looking at a neutral ground. I was in this situation similarly some years ago where I was in New York, the person I was with in another city. And I kept saying to him, I don't want you to move here for me because if it doesn't work out, I don't want that guilt trip, right? I've just asked you to uproot your whole life and vice versa. I didn't want to move where he was because I love my career and where I was located. So I do like the idea of neutral ground, if you will, because now you're building this new chapter together and you will find your social circle together and also individually because you will go, I don't know, somewhere and you'll meet someone and hit a conversation with or whatever. And he'll have his circle of friends as well, whether it's at the gym that you meet people. Right. I don't even know where people meet anyone outside of the <laughs> world, but you'll find your own social circle. But I think that living in a place where neither of you owns that space, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like you're coming on my turf, you're in my world. Nothing is guaranteed, right? Right. I feel that dynamic of balance might be one easier, meaning like the balance in the relationship, because you're both insecure right now. You're both giving up something. Right. And no one will look at the other as saying, I gave up more, or I did this. We did this, right? And how powerful is it to start a relationship, whether it's friendship or a love relationship with a we are doing this. Right. Yeah, I like that. What are your hesitations? I know that you love your apartment and your friends and your community there. I think that's the big thing is I just really love where I live. Like my best friend lives here. I lived in a bigger city, moved back home after COVID. And that's kind of where I ended up here. And I just never thought I would live in like an even smaller town than this. But then as I'm getting older, I'm learning that there's pros to that. When you talk about like settling down more, raising a family, that kind of thing. A quality of life, you know, quality of life is important. But listen, you don't have to stay there. You both might come to the conclusion. It doesn't have to be permanent if you don't want it to be permanent. Sure. And your friends, I've lived in Dallas, Texas, Bryan College Station, Chicago, Philadelphia, and now New York. I had my baby shower. We had so many people from different points of light for me. We had my Chicago crew take a picture with me in my baby shower. The Philly yeah. crew took a picture with me in my baby shower. You know, and you collect, if you will, the blessings of friendships. But those friendships are not determined by logistics. Sure. Because I have friends I don't talk to every day. And I get on the phone with them. And it's like we never stop talking to each other. And sometimes you'll go through that transition where you don't talk with each other I have a friend, funny enough, who just texted me and she said, what's going on in my house? The mat on the front door said, welcome spring. They still had their <laughs> Halloween things outside. And then they had a Christmas wreath and a Christmas tree. She was my best friend in the world, age 27. We spoke every single day. We did everything together. She's now a mother of three. I'm a mom. She lives in Texas. I live in New York. The last time she probably called me or we spoke was probably my birthday, September. But we laughed at that text like we talked yesterday. Because you recognize you grow yeah. and you're taking a chance on love, but you're not losing your friends. Yeah. When would you be moving? 
Well, my lease is up in like five months. That's what we're looking at. Yeah. So many people right now are putting a lot of pressure to make a big decision. Like after young people, especially you have enough time to be thoughtful about this decision. You both do. Like Anna said, we rush ourselves. We put pressure and be kind to him. One of the mantras that I say, you know, space and grace. Yeah. And you have to give yourself space and grace And you give the people you love space and grace. And whatever decision you make, at some point you will wonder, was it the right decision? Whatever it is, something will go, quote unquote, wrong. And you'll say, oh, gosh, if I'd done that or what if we'd done this? So there will be a time where that happens. But that's okay. Right now, give yourself the space and grace. If it's five months, you know your deadline. That's about being a grown up, right? You have a deadline right? Your lease is up. So we know that. And that's some time away, but also it will come rather fast. But that's a part of being a grown up and understanding that we would love to have infinite time to make decisions. But at the end of the day, you do have a clock that's ticking in the sense of the lease. It's not loud, but it can't be ignored. But give yourself that space and grace. But recognize as a grown person, you have five months on that lease to make the next decision. Have you both lived with other people before, like in relationship? No, this will be both of our first times like living with a significant other. I mean, we both had relationships in college where it felt like both of our exes were like basically living with us, but it was nothing like official where we shared a lease and a house. How many times do you guys see each other a week? He's only an hour away. So we see each other like four times a week. And is he able to spend the night? Yeah. Do you drive to him more frequently or does he come to you? I feel like he comes to me more often. He always comes on Wednesdays. That's like our day. And then we'll spend the weekend together. Either I'll go to him or he'll come down to me. Then this feels like you guys both have a solid emotional investment in this. Yeah. And you don't have to make your mind up today. You have time. So I just encourage you to think selfishly. And what I mean by that is respect where you guys are as you take every consideration. There's nothing to rush. I love it that he loves you so much and that you love him. But you do have some time to really kind of work out some ideas. And if you are feeling like, man, this feels too soon, or if it feels like there's a whole lot I'm giving up, I would encourage you to examine that a little bit. You know, it is perfectly fine for you to say, I don't know if I'm ready to leave this area. You guys are young Mm -hmm. and there shouldn't be this much pressure on you necessarily. But it sounds like you are inclined to give it a go, which I totally support. I just want to have your back. I just want you to feel that you are excited and happy. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's like, he's always so excited when we talk about moving together. And I have just recently kind of got a little more excited because I'm normally like more sad to be leaving. I think I just don't do great with change is maybe the problem. (laughs) Yeah, nobody does. It's just a chapter closing. But Brooke, do you get the feeling that he loves you more than you love him? Oh my gosh, I don't. I've never thought about that. I don't know. Maybe. Mm. I think we're pretty equally in love. Okay, that's good. You guys are both going to be lonely. So use it to like really open up communication with each other. And maybe if you guys talk tonight, maybe say like, 
you know, I'm worried about that we're going to be kind of lonely. Like, what do you think? You're going to be working all the time. I'm going to be remote working. I don't have my friends and you still have to commute back. I really want to just talk this out so I feel really comfortable. And I'm sure we're going to need to lean on each other a little bit or whatever. But I especially will because I have this social circle. How long have you been together? You're not. You have so much growing and adventures to create together as well. There are so many books on these things to do together, couple building and bonding that won't remove you from the love of friends and family, but help you grow in this way. And to Anna's point, looking at, is your life better with him in the yeah. sense of, do you feel supported, empowered and smarter? And For sure. do you enjoy it? It's laughter, but it's also curiosity. Are you curious together? Yes. Those are the things I find are life-changing, right? I love a curious partner. My husband, like I said, he grew up in the Bronx. He took the risk and asked me to go to pizza. That was a risk. But, you know, I enjoy curiosity in someone. Yeah. We got a pizza oven. Do you know how much fun it was recently, like making pizzas together? And he's like (laughs) looking up recipes. That's fun. But think about it. I mean, you've only been together, what, 18 months? There's so much fun and growth and a personal evolution that you can experience with a partner. No one knows if anything's going to last forever and nobody can pretend they do. But if you feel like this person makes the journey something that is fulfilling for you, fear is always going to be there, even if you were moving alone. Yeah, yeah, it is. I want you to feel just excited about love and life. Mm. And I think it's really wise that you're really thinking about this like five months before the lease is up. That's a great gift to have the luxury of that kind of consideration. A lot's going to happen. It will go by fast, but a lot will happen. Yeah, I know. I'm really grateful for you. I wish that we had all the answers. Like I can't emphasize enough about listening to your gut. No, this was very helpful, actually. Oh, good. Yeah. Good, good. (laughs) Yes. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Best of luck. Thanks. Bye, guys. We've all been there in some form. I know. It's fear. It's also fear of the unknown. And fear of losing your friends and family, it's tough. That's a tough one. I'm so impressed that you broke up five engagements. Listen, they didn't make it hard, so. <laughs> they Shit. It, they made it easy. But then, you know, you got to call like your bridesmaids and like. Oh, no, we had not got that far. I was engaged. We were not in the planning stage. I love it. You're a woman who says yes in the moment. <laughs> Back then, back then. (laughs) I'm with you, though. I think it's wise. You valued yourself in terms of like not getting sucked into being a pleaser, you know? Yeah. And that's hard, you know, and I always tell people, and I don't say this to be cliche, to my husband's chagrin, almost every ex I stay in contact with. That's amazing. They all still ask me advice and a couple I don't for sure for legitimate I feel the reasons. But for the most part, almost everyone that I've shared my life with in that way, we stay in touch, whether it's just a hey, a happy birthday or oh wow, you know, great show today. I saw your show, it was so good. You know, superficial conversation, but I think meaningful at the same time. Hi, Alexa. Hi, Alexa. Hi. Thanks so much for your letter. Would you tell our listeners what's going on? Okay, so at the time that I submitted this, me and my boyfriend had broken up, and we'd been broken up for a few months. 
We had just gotten back together. We were together for a few months. It was kind of messy. We hadn't seen each other for almost a month. Both of us had gotten COVID. And I don't know if you guys heard about how some people after they got COVID, they fell into a bit of a depression. And that's what happened with him. Who initiated the first breakup? He did. Was it surprising? What was your shock level? Well, I had a feeling it was going to happen because a few days beforehand, he'd started to get really distant. So I sent him a text and I was like, if this is what you need to do, just let me know. Like, I'll respect your space. I don't know what you're going through and I can't pretend that I do. So if you feel like you need to handle this on your own, by all means. And then he reassured me. He was like, oh, no, that's not going to happen. And then two days later, he called me at seven in the morning and I knew. What did he say? Not much. The first thing that came out of his mouth was, man, I should have figured out what I was going to say before I called you. But he just tried to explain to me what was happening. He said that he didn't feel mentally capable of being in a relationship at the moment because of what he was going through. And he didn't want to either neglect me or treat me in a way that he didn't want to treat me because of what he was going through. He didn't want me to feel neglected is basically what he was trying to say. It sounds really weird. And I didn't understand a single thing he was trying to say to me. It sounds heartbreaking. I don't mean to judge him. I'm sure he's a really sensitive, loving person, but it sounds a little manipulative in a youthful way. Yeah. So then what happened? So at the time I was completely alone. Both my parents were in two different states. My family that lives in the town that I live in had their own lives. My friends had their own lives and I couldn't ask them to babysit me. So I waited a few days to see how I would handle the breakup and I couldn't handle it. So I bought a plane ticket and I flew myself out to New Jersey, which is where my mom was. And I stayed with her for a few days. It was a good distraction because she was there taking care of my grandma. So she was a nice distraction. (laughs) And as soon as I got there, he'd sent me a text and he was like, how you doing? Mm. I was like, are you Oh, God. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Bored and depressed? Yeah. Okay. It sounds like you guys had an intense, have an intense relationship. Like you guys spend a lot of time together. I just want to make sure before we go on to the next chapter that I'm clear on that. Is that right? Yeah. We'd been together for a little over a year when that happened. Mm. On a scale of one to 10, how would you gauge your relationship intensity? Then probably like a solid seven or eight. Okay. It wasn't at the level that we're at now. Okay. So you went to your mom, you're like, I'm destroyed. Then what happened? So I stayed out there for a few days And then we came back. But while I was out there, I had a bad moment and I sent him all these texts and I was like, you're such an asshole. I can't believe you didn't even have the respect to like break up with me in person. We've been together for a year. What is that? And I was like, when I get back into town, I'm coming to your house and we're going to have a conversation about this. How did he respond? He was like, you're right. Decent. All right. I shouldn't have done it that way. I could have handled it better. And let me know when you're in town. And that really caught me by surprise because I wasn't expecting him to say that. Why? He's not normally that generous? I don't know. I just didn't know if he would have wanted to see me. I knew that he knew that I was right. What? He said it. I just didn't think that he was going to be open to seeing me because it was such a weird way to break up with someone. So you guys got back together? Yeah. You got back together. And what's the status now? Now we're great. You're great. I love him dearly. He's just a sweetie. And I do bring up the fact that we broke up a lot. I made him feel awful for it. I really did. But I still bring it up every now and then just because there's that. It rocked you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how long ago was this? We broke up in February and then we got back together 
in like April, I think. So we're fast approaching a year on this and you're still needling him about it. Yeah. I would do though. <laughs> well, you've not forgiven him. Yeah. And you're not going to forgive him and you don't trust him and you think it could happen again. You're not healed from it. And reminding him of it doesn't help mm -hmm. because he knows you don't trust him. He knows. And so you have this big wall that you haven't even started to climb because it's there. It's there. So he said he was sorry. He's not normally generous and whatever it is that way. And he did it. He threw himself on the sword. It's almost a year later. Why do you keep bringing it up? There was a brief period of time where it didn't even cross my mind. Ah, because you were heady in love again. I don't know if it's because it's getting closer and closer to the time that that happened. Okay. So you'd let it go. Mm -hmm. And then recently you've started to allow it to resurface. Mm -hmm. Is it because you are not convinced of the why it happened, right? You say he was gone into a depression. That's his version. But it sounds like you've not wholly been sold on that's the reason why, which is why Anna said manipulation, you know, because then you start to say, wait a minute, was there somebody else? Was that the real reason? Were you trying to see if the grass was greener on the other side? What really? Because it doesn't sound like you're convinced that it was a depression related to a lot of things, which might be true too, but you're not convinced. And there's a reason that you're not convinced. I don't know what that reason is, but there's a reason. I think that maybe the devastation was so unexpected and rough. And I think that this shit takes time. It sounds like you guys are happy now, right? Yeah, we are. You know what I would do? Hike the Appalachian Trail <laughs> together <laughs> and get to the bottom of it. Well, I think that's what you have to do. I think you have to be honest and go to him and say, listen, the one year anniversary of this thing that happened. And for several months, I felt that we'd move forward. I recognize that I haven't, right? And I don't know why. So let me tell you some of the things that I've unpacked, right? I feel like maybe there was something else or whatever it is. But I think acknowledging it, because he knows, and especially if he is truly remorseful, right? When somebody said they're sorry and they've fallen on the sword, right? And somebody keeps going, remember that time? You're like, well, damn, I can't keep apologizing, right? I've said it. So that makes him feel a way. So I think that you really have to, in my opinion, acknowledge it, tell him, don't hike because we don't want to have to come and mend you and fall down the <laughs> Appalachian Trail. But do something fun where it's not a big old sit down where you're not like, we have something to talk about. Yeah. Do something chill. Yeah. Bowling, whatever. And then just say, listen, here's the deal. I'm just going to keep it straight with you. This is how I feel. Because no one can tell you how to feel. But if he is truly remorseful and it wasn't, you know, this diabolical manipulation of some nefarious reason, if he truly just got caught up, right, in depression and other things that happen in real life. You know, no one wants to live being badgered about that. Or like Haley's comment, every seven years, I'm going to have to hear Alexa talk about this moment, right? <laughs> so how do you get off the wheel? Talk about it. And you're going to have to then at some point accept if you believe him or not, and if you're ready to move on from this. Yeah. But you don't deserve to have that over your heart either. So you're going to have to either let it go and accept it, or you're going to have to make the tough decision that you cannot let it go and you're going to have to move on. But neither of you deserve to have that. Mm -hmm. This is a great time for you to take assessment. Yeah. Of him, of your relationship. And you can do it silently, too. Because what he did was stinging. Yeah. I think you both need to put in the effort and time to really talk about this. It might even bring you closer. And if not the Appalachian Trail, someplace 
that you won't get distracted. Yeah. Mm -hmm. More than that, you've got to understand and be prepared if you're going to accept the answer. Right? Because you kind of know the answer. I don't think his story is going to change. I don't even know him. I don't think his story is going to change. <laughs> I think he's going to say it was a bad moment in his life. And he needed your attention in a weird way. Whatever it is, you have to decide if he sticks to that version, are you going to be okay with letting it go and moving forward? Yeah. You're young and beautiful. Heartbreak is a part of our scars. Yeah. Scars don't heal if you keep opening them. That's true. Yeah. And so... Either you're going to heal with him or heal without him. If you decide to move on, you're just going to take this to the next relationship, to the next relationship. Mm -hmm. If it's distrust, if it's insecurity, we all have those moments. I have. I've taken it. I have a backpack. Yeah. <laughs> Erica Bedu has a famous song called Bag Lady. You know, she says, bag lady, you're going to hurt your back carrying all <laughs> no, this stuff God. around. You're going to hurt your back carrying all of this baggage. So you have to just say, if I'm going to forgive him, I'm going to move on. And God forbid, you know, five years from now, you learn that he just did not tell the truth and all, and it was really some ruse. You know what? You got to win some, lose some. Love is a delicate thing. The heart is a delicate thing. We know people aren't always straight up. But I think Anna's point about getting somewhere easy, but serious, but not sit down like, okay, I'm telling my mom now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're going to sit down and appropriately have the conversation. And Alexa, keep this in mind. I've had relationships with people who have mental issues and depression, and it took me a long, long time to realize that I could not fix them or make them happy. Yes. I wanted to. I kept trying, and I felt really guilty. Like, mm -hmm. blame was mm -hmm. thrown on to me frequently, and I thought I could fix it because there was, like, this desperate quality to this person. And one of my regrets, I know that I've grown from it, but would be the wasted time. Yes. In trying to make someone happy who is fundamentally unhappy. Mm -hmm. And you can be there for people, but not fix them. Yeah. That's not your role. You know what I mean? Life doesn't qualify us to fix people. Yeah. We can be there for them. You remember that game Operation? We don't have these little tweezers to get shocked on or whatever. You're not qualified to fix somebody. You're qualified to love them. You're qualified to be friends. We're not even qualified to provide unconditional love because things do come with terms. Yes. At the bottom, terms and agreements for my love. That's right. Mm -hmm. And so your terms and agreement are, I'm trying to get past this. I want to be there for you. You know, most people suffer from bouts of depression. We went through a global pandemic, COVID, you lose your job, all of these things in even more extreme cases. You can be there for someone, but you cannot save them because no love is unconditional and it will wear you both down and you're going to wear him down. You're going to wear yourself down if this is a cycle. And by the way, if it's a cycle, guess what it is also? It's toxic mm -hmm. and it's not healthy. You don't want to get in that. My mom would always tell me to be selfish in love. It just took me a while to understand what that meant. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, Alexa, I love you. I'm thinking about you. I love you. Bye, Alexa. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Tamron, I want to do like a breakdown someday of your five engagement breakups. <laughs> I've talked so frequently on the podcast about how breaking up an engagement is so much oh, harder. It, it is, is hard. Yeah. You got everybody uh, excited all around you. Life is an evolving thing and we're all evolving and we're not our best decisions and we're not our worst decisions. That's a beautiful sentiment. I'm not my worst decision. <laughs> <laughs> well, I adore you. This has been so fun. I adore you too. And Tamron, I truly can't thank you enough. 